0: Uh, When we finished earlier, we've ended with Paul being ambitious for the resurrection from the dead, ambitious for the future, the future when Christ returns, death is defeated, and sin is a memory, not a present experience. This is a man looking to the future, impatient for the future, ambitious to have that future now, to have it as his reality. And that future ambition shapes what he does now, Our ambitions for the future will shape how we live now. They should, they must. Now, in our passage, we get a picture of an athlete competing to win a prize. A helpful picture now and then, so I thought we'd explore the world of an Australian swimmer. Now, this is Melanie Wright. Did anyone recognise... Yeah, I've got a yes, so someone who's into swimming recognises her. I didn't. That says maybe her ambitions didn't get where you hoped them to, but she is a bit an Australian swimmer. Now, she wrote an article about her life as a swimmer. So when I say I, this is so not me, this is Melanie. Um, by the time I got to the end of high school, I was training 10 sessions a week. In order to fit it around school, I was out of bed at 4.30 a.m. in order to be dropped off in time for the 5 a.m. Sa- um, start. Shout out to all the swimming parents. After two hours of training and a full day of school, it's then back to the pool for another session, four to 6 p.m., then home, dinner and bed so that I could do it all again next day. At the peak of my career, I was training in the pool and on land two to three times a day, six days a week for about 35 hours. Throw in physio, massage, pre-training activation, I don't even know what that is, but pre-training activation and injury prevention routines, it's easy to see why swimming's a full-time job. Now these sessions weren't just getting up to do a nice leisurely swim up and down. They involved significant physical and mental distress, striving to push past the threshold of pain as often as possible. Wasn't uncommon for me to throw up after a hard session due to high levels of lactate. And lying on the side of the pool completely broken was a common experience. I used to train like this 50 weeks of the year, including Christmas day. It's no wonder swimmers eat so much. Then she gives a very long description of food. But while the training and the diet are an important part of the job, so too is the lifestyle. Parties are few and far between, and the ones I went to would be 6am to 9pm so that I made sure I got to bed. I would never travel or go on family holidays due to training. Walking the dog was out of the question because I needed to keep my legs as fresh as possible. (laughs) University studies were also a a struggle due to the sheer exhaustion making it difficult to concentrate. Being a swimmer is hard. It's around-the-clock dedication of mind, body, and soul. Uh, it's easy to see why swimmers who just miss Olympic medals, or who, who fall short of finals, are utterly devastated, given all they've put into this, their dream. Uh, she pulled out of one of the events in the Rio Olympics. No, she didn't make it to Rio. Anyway, she's now not swimming anymore because you know you're over the hill at what 27. If you're ambitious for the glory that comes with being an Olympian, it dominates your life. It dominates your social life, your family life, your physicality, your time, your education, your energy levels. Present completely governed by the future, by the future dreams and hopes. Our ambitions for the future will shape how we live now. Our ambitions for the future should shape how we live now. Philippians 3 tells us about the future that Paul is ambitious for. Verses 10 to 11. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. He picks it up again right at the end, verses 20 to 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Paul is looking forward to a glorious future. The return of Jesus, his own resurrection to a glorious body, heaven as home. He's looking forward to a glorious future with Jesus. He started his race with Jesus, he did that when he became a Christian, and now he's ambitious to finish that race well. Look at what he says in verses 12 to 14. Not that I've already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do... Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize, for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. It's almost like he says the same thing twice. Can you see it? It's not finished yet, so I press on to reach the goal. And he presses on not in the hope of victory. He presses on in the certainty of victory. He presses on looking forwards, not backwards. And he does that because we're not there yet. He's not there yet. That's something he knows. This life, this experience of Christ that he talked about at the beginning of the chapter, this experience of Christ, as good as it is, because he was saying it's good, right? This experience of Christ, as good as it is, is not as good as it gets. It gets better. He used relational language in the first part of Philippians 3, I want to know Christ, and his relational emphasis continues here. I take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Paul's future is a future with Christ. Paul knows Christ and he knows Christ truthfully. He enjoys his current relationship with Christ, but he knows that better is coming. It's a bit like an engagement period before a wedding the book of revelation compares you know the coming of jesus with a marriage i reckon i can run with that image you know each other you like each other that's why you chose to get married you enjoy each other's company that's why you hopefully that's why you chose to get married but you also expect it to get better you expect to know each other better Enjoy the relationship with better when when you get married, when your life changes and you are together in a way you're just not together while you're waiting. It's good now, but the future's yet to arrive in all its fullness. It's yet to be fully experienced and enjoyed. And engagements are, or should be, whatever, periods of joyful longing and anticipation. But they're also periods of frustration and impatience. Because you want the future now. Ambition picks up on both those aspects, longing but frustration. My current relationship with Jesus is good but there's better. Be ambitious for the better. I know Jesus now and I know his Lord. I've experienced his resurrection power. I met him. But there's a lot about his resurrection power and his future rule that I haven't experienced yet. You know the Jesus we're told about in 2, 9 to 10, that whole idea of every knee will bow and every tongue confess? I haven't seen that Jesus clearly yet. I haven't seen every knee bow and every tongue confess. The risen, glorified and ascended Jesus, seated in heaven, ruling with and for his people. I've seen him, but not fully I know him, but not fully, because I still live in a world where people reject him, where he's scorned and mocked, used as a swear word, a world where folks' gods are worshipped, a world of suffering and injustice and pain. I don't know him fully as that Lord yet, and I can't wait. I'm ambitious for that future, for his glory to be revealed, because I'm not there yet, but you know what? I will be soon. The Christian race is different from that of individual swimmers. Olympians train in the hope that they will finish and win the prize. We train in the knowledge that we will finish and that we will win the prize. The passage almost has two forms of movement forward. Verse 12, I press on to take hold of that which Christ, for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. It's almost, I take hold because Christ has already I'm moving forward as he's pulling me forward. And I don't picture it as kind of a little holding hand skipping through the fields. It's more like a death grip, right? To, to keep hold while you get moved forwards. Running to keep, when I was a kid, holding onto dad's pocket, running to keep up as he walked quickly. I, I'm moving and he's moving me. Verse 13, straining towards what is ahead. I, I press on to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. It's almost like running down a moving walkway except holding on to dad's pocket is better because it's a relationship, not a walkway. Is the future attractive to you? Are you ambitious for heaven? Olympic athletes talk about imagining victory. You know, apparently you're meant to stand there and imagine yourself on the the dais and everyone kind of... you're, You're meant to imagine the glory so that you move towards it, to feed your ambition, to keep you going throughout that training. You've got to keep the end in mind. What do you imagine heaven to be like? Because if it's babies with wings on harps, with harps on clouds, I'm more than happy for it to wait, quite frankly. When Jesus talks about the future for his people, he often tells parables about banquets. It's a family gathering when you like your family. I've qualified that because I'm not commenting on your particular family. It's a family gathering you want to be at of a family that loves being together, and pictures of welcome and joy and stories and warmth. Does that work for you as a picture of heaven? Maybe Hebrews works better for you, right? In Hebrews, the future is described as a a land of rest. It's rest that is promised in our future. A place of no more striving. Does that work for you as a picture of heaven? Isaiah and Revelation speak of a place where there's no more weeping or pain or suffering, and I couldn't put an image to this, right? It was beyond me putting an image to it. So deal with the woman at rest. Because this is restful when you hear it. Isaiah and Revelation speak of a place where there's no more weeping or pain or suffering, where sin and its consequences are a thing of the past. I find that hard to imagine. Relationships untainted by sin and its effects. My relationship with God untainted by sin and its effects. I'm looking forward to knowing Jesus fully. I'm looking forward to no more wrestling with God and what he's doing in my life and the world. To having a fully integrated, to being integrated and authentic, where I feel close to him because I am close to him. I mean, I know his spirit lives in me now. I know I am close to God, but I don't always feel it. That'll be nice when I do. Can you imagine A place of no more doubts. You know, I seriously doubt that the resurrection of Jesus happened about once every five years or so. Because it's wacky. Won't it be nice for that to be a thing of the past? I always come through them. I think I always will. But they're unpleasant. For my mind and emotions and actions to be working in harmony and rejoicing that Jesus Christ is Lord, I look forward to that. Can you imagine it? A time and place where I don't struggle with sin anymore. Let's go back to her. I'll stay with her. A time and place where I don't struggle with sin anymore. I will want to do what is right instinctively. Can you imagine that? Instinctively doing what is good, not having to think, I should do this, do I want to do this, help me to want to do this. Don't wait for the emotion, just go ahead and do it. Can you imagine not not being to instinctively want what is right and do what is right? to not having to confess my sins to not being disappointed about how i failed to be the person that god wanted me to be the person god has made me to be i'm looking forward to being christ like and to being surrounded by people for whom that is also true relationships with people untainted by sin and its effects i won't hurt you deliberately or accidentally and you won't hurt me Deliberately or accidentally, because we do both, don't we? Able to trust people, be honest with people, be vulnerable with people. Can you imagine that? Living in a place where you don't have to worry about what the future holds, because it's risk-free. There is no sickness, death, hunger, injustice. I won't experience those things and I won't see other people experiencing those things. I won't cause those things. To have a body that is not slowing down. My body's heading towards death. The grey hair's popping out. Pre menopause, ladies. Never thought I'd say that in a Bible talk. <laughs> a body that's received its upgrade. Can you imagine? Verse 20 to 21 says, But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Paul is eagerly awaiting his Saviour Jesus to come and bring in this world. His first, it's interesting, his first longing is for the Lord to come. It's about relationship, because all of this other stuff flows from knowing Jesus. Only then, after his longing for the Lord, then he starts thinking about his new body, which is not just about our new body, but every aspect of our bodily life that has yet to be renewed. It's about citizenship, where our home and life and country and the place we live and what that involves Mental, spiritual, emotional, social health. Won't that be nice? Gone with insecurity, inadequacy, depression, guilt, fear. Gone with the battle of sin and temptation. Gone with weakness and decline. Human frailty done and dusted. When Christ comes, we'll still be human. We don't lose that. But it's safe. Can you imagine what the future will hold? Because you need to keep your eyes on the prize so that you press on, keep moving forward. Verse 13 talks about Paul forgetting what is behind and straining on toward what is ahead. See, there's a danger of being distracted by looking back. Swimmers looking back and remembering just how good it is to sleep in beyond 4.30 a.m., Coaches speak about what to do when something goes wrong in your training or plans. You've got got to stop thinking about that and think about the goal. You've got to put that behind you and keep thinking about the goal. Now, I don't think Paul here is saying the past is irrelevant. Just forget about it. Don't learn from it. It's more about dwelling, I think, on past successes and failures, more about dwelling on them in a way that hinders your future progress. It's a dwelling on the past that leads to ongoing guilt because you screwed up, or a dwelling on the past that leads to ongoing pride, just how good you actually are and so is your life here in this world, that will cause you to stumble or even stop. It's the type of looking back that will hold you back. It's that kind of looking back. Don't look back and be distracted by the disappointment and guilt of past failures because they're going to keep you looking at yourself and your inability rather than Jesus and the future he is carrying you, pulling you, moving you towards. And don't look back and be distracted by the joy and pride of past successes because that will keep you looking at yourself and your strength rather than Jesus and the future he is carrying you towards. Look at him. Keep your eyes on the goal, on the prize so that you keep moving forward because we're easily distracted when pressing on is hard work. When the pain kicks in, (laughs) because the training is hard. And see, I think the pain barrier hits different people at different times and places. It doesn't hit us all in the same place. We're all unique. The Christian race, I think, is a bit more like an endurance, long, long endurance race than a sprint. But it doesn't keep going forever, is what Paul's telling us. Well, the Christian life does, but not the hard work of it. Pressing on feels costly because it is costly. That's truthful. It involves giving up all sorts of lesser ambitions for the greater one. Swimmers so talk of early mornings, early nights, costs to your education, costs to your friendships, costs that the whole family bears because you're in this together. Pressing on means giving up lesser ambitions or at least dropping them down the order on your to-do list. Not necessarily because they're bad or wrong in themselves, but because you've got a greater ambition, an all-encompassing ambition. What lesser ambitions do you need to give up? Well, perhaps not give up, relativise them a little, drop them a little on the to-do list. So what ones distract you from pursuing the greater ambition? of knowing Christ Jesus now and into the future. Because when Paul talks like this, he's not just talking about himself, Paul, the super-apostle. He thinks this is how all Christians should live. In verse 15, he shifts from talking about I to talking about we. Up until now, it's been I. It's now we. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Olympians seek victory knowing they will exclude others. That kind of comes with the territory. You win at the cost of others. The hope is to beat them to the prize. Christians are ambitious for everyone to get there together. Our hope is to share the prize. That's mature Christian thinking, adult thinking. And Paul is saying to the Philippians, grow up, think like adults. Thinking that goes beyond, I like lollies, so I will eat lollies. Although those snakes were good. Thinking that goes, thinking that looks at the long-term consequences of decisions and asks, does it make me healthy? Thinking that looks at the long-term consequences of decisions and asks, does it make others healthy? That's adult thinking. Thinking that goes beyond, I know Jesus and that's good, to I know Jesus and I know who he loves and I know what he's passionate about and I know what he's doing in the world and I know the privilege he's given me in inviting me to be involved. We are in this together. I find Paul's words in Philippians 1 remarkable. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me, yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body, and convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. I mean, he's pretty much saying live or die, it's all due. Dying is better, straight to Jesus. But living, probably necessary because you need me. That's remarkable. That's how confident he is about the future. There's a man who knows Jesus, who knows Jesus' passion not just for Paul himself, but for others. A thinking that goes beyond, I know Jesus, to a man who thinks others need to know Jesus too, and so I press on. He orients his whole life around knowing Jesus and knowing his passion for others, sharing in his passion for others. Adult thinking for as long as you are an adult. This ambition to know Christ, to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me, and for others to do both of these things, it's not meant to stop when you turn 20 or 40 or 60. I don't know how old the oldest woman in this room is. 80s maybe? 70s? Establish no eye contact with anyone. (laughs) We don't retire from pressing on because the race isn't finished. The prize isn't won until Jesus returns. Now, you may need to slow down as the body starts to pack it in which will change how you press on. True. I don't do it the same way I did when I was 21. It'll change the way you press on, change the way you encourage others to run with you, swim, run, whatever, we're moving forward, but it shouldn't change the fact of pressing on. And I actually wonder whether getting older and retiring actually gives you particular advantages when it comes to encouraging others to press on, because you've done it. I've been in ministry for 18 years. If the retirement age is 68, right, I've still got more years ahead of me in paid ministry than behind. And that doesn't fill me with horror. Isn't that lovely? And that's before I even start thinking about what retirement holds in terms of ministry possibilities. As long as the Lord gives me. Which may be to retirement or might not, actually. Actually. Giving up lesser ambitions for the greater one of knowing Christ is not something you stop doing, you retire from at some point in time. It's something you choose to do again and again and again, even if you have to change the way you do it, because other things don't allow you to keep going in the same way. And one of the ways we work out how to do that, in the particulars of your life, because this will actually look quite different, I think, for every individual, not just for Because we're different, but even at different stages of our life, it will look different. One of the ways you work out how to do that in the particulars of your life is through Christian role models, I think. There are some women here who, in retirement, I look at them and think, I want to get old like that. That's how I want to get old. Who are your role models? Why are they your role models? In verse 17, Paul writes, Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Look at how people do this. It's good to have models, people who can show you what mature Christian living looks like in practice, in the details and messiness and joys and griefs of day-to-day life, who can talk about how they make decisions, how they cope, how they rejoice, and how knowing Jesus drives them. In this room, there is a ridiculous variety of women. Widows, wives, divorced, never married, with children, without children, mother of babies, kids, teenagers, adults, grandmothers, there are sisters, there are daughters, women in their teens, women in their 20s, 30s, 40s, women from different nationalities and life journeys. Some have been Christian all their life and some are new at it. Some have great families and some are pretty, I was about to say average, but some are destructive. Different degrees of health in them and in their families. Studying, working full-time, part-time, unemployed, underemployed, in professional jobs, in manual jobs. Some of which pay well, some of which don't. Some of which give job satisfaction and some of which just feed the family. Women who are loving their life and are excited about the possibilities for the future. And women who are just keeping their head above water and if we all get to the end of the day alive, it's been a good day. Permutations of these are endless, aren't they? There's a ridiculous variety of women in this room. Choose a Christian model. To watch, to ask questions of, to pray with. Actually, ask them to pray for you. You can pray for them too. Models of godly ambition in life. People who are ambitious to know Jesus as their primary ambition, to know him and into the future, and who are ambitious for others to know Jesus. And ask them what it looks like in family and work and ministry and rest. Rest was part of that picture of heaven. There's got to be a taste of rest now too. And the way that they choose to do it or have done it might not be exactly the way you choose to do it. But it's good to have a model of a possibility, give you a starting point. We need models of the Christian life. At the start of our Christian walk, if you come from a family or community that is not particularly Christian, you need models of the Christian life just to work out what it looks like but we need models as we continue in our Christian walk because our circumstances keep changing. And so we need to work, keep working out what it looks like to have knowing Christ as our primary ambition in this phase of life and where our smaller ambitions actually do fit in. But for, us to, for this to work, we need to spend time with each other, getting to know each other. It would be good to work out how to do that. Oh, I'm anticipating we'll do it over lunch. And I'm anticipating we'll do it in our discussion groups. You'll actually get some in our electives. You'll get women actually giving you wisdom and advice on how they've done it. Scripture, you need to weigh it up against Scripture, of course, but but someone working out how to put it in practice, that's valuable. As an aside, you should also think about what kind of model you are because this can't all work one way, everyone looking for someone else. You look for models but as you look for models, be prepared to be one. You really should be one of the people Paul points to when he says, follow us. He's just saying this is adult thinking. This is not special, super super spiritual Christian thinking. It's adult Christian thinking. Look for a model, be a model. Even if, even if what you are modeling is how to deal with failure. That's a powerful model sometimes. Paul is calling people to imitate him, not others, because our life in our lives we are surrounded by alternatives alternative models that aren't Christian models. For as I have often told you, I'm from verse 8, eighteen, for as I've often told you before, and tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. When Paul talks about the enemies of Christ, notice his grief. He speaks with tears. He's sad for these people. Now, I can't tell you exactly who these people are, but I can tell you what they're ambitious for. Verse 19, their destiny is destruction. Verse 20, we await Australia. Their God is their stomach. We await a new body through which we will seek to please Jesus, not ourselves. They choose self-indulgence. We choose self-giving. They glorify shameful things themselves, their desires, their bodies, anything other than the glorious Christ who came to save them. Because their horizons are limited to life on earth. But our citizenship is in heaven. Now, I don't want you to oversimplify this. I don't think the people of verse 18 are necessarily drunk and greedy, sexually immoral, lazy, good-for-nothings. I'm figuring you can work out probably not a great model. Although some of those things can be attractive at certain phases. Let's be honest about that too. They may be, and if you know people who are like that, love them. Be sad for them. They were created in the image of God and are precious and valuable. And if that's the life they're choosing to lead, be saddened by it. Don't be a judgmental... Yeah, let's stop there. But maybe don't select them as one of your key models for life. That's what I'm saying. Not look down on them. I'm not saying that. But maybe don't choose them as one of your key models for life. No, let's be a little bit more subtle about this. These people of verse 18 and 19, they might be your colleagues, your friends, your family, the parents you know, the people who sit next to you in class. They might be lovely, sincere people, kind people, moral people, People who are ambitious to improve their lives and the lives of those around them. It is possible to be all these things and yet still be living as enemies of the cross of Christ. These people might be your colleagues who are fantastic to work with, ambitious to make a positive difference in the world, a good boss or mentor or employee, but they're not waiting for a saviour from heaven because they don't think they need one. Maybe they think that with the right education, technology, circumstances, the right government policies, maybe they think humanity must and can save itself. Sounds a bit like seeking to establish their own righteousness. They underestimate or ignore human sin and what it takes to change the human heart. They may have good ambitions for themselves and the world, but they're small ambitions because they avoid dealing with the real problem, the sinful human heart and our need for a saviour. So be subtle about how you think about these people. And when you work with them, they may well teach you so many good things, and so you should be grateful to God for them. But let's be honest, there will be times when their earthly ambitions and short-term ambitions and limited ambitions will conflict with your Christian ones. And that's when you choose to speak up or not speak up. And if you like them, you want their respect. So to speak up or not speak up is a big decision. And that's when you think reputation, worthless in comparison to knowing Christ. And that's when you think promotion, worthless in comparison to knowing Christ. These people might be your colleagues. These people might be your family. (laughs) your friends, you like them. That's why they're your friends. But their mind is set on earthly things. They genuinely believe that life is all about the here and now. And so if you've got 80 years, maybe less, you better make the most of it. Their God is their stomach, so to speak. Make the most of this life. So they will encourage you to live a cost-free, pain-free, risk-free life. Perhaps aim for hire if they're optimists. Aim for a joyful, comfortable and exciting life. Collect food and travel experiences. Have a job that satisfies. Create, if not the perfect body, a better one than you started with. Make decisions based on how happy or how comfortable it makes you and your family. Not whether it's right or wrong. Because if it makes you happy, it is right, isn't it? Don't be greedy because money can't buy happiness, but do be sensible when it comes to financial security. And when these people give you advice, they give it as people who love you, who want what's best for you. But the problem is their ambitions for themselves and therefore for you are not bad. None of these things are bad. But they may be small ambitions because they forget that the world is temporary. So let's be honest, there will be times when their earthly ambitions, their short-term ambitions, their limited ambitions, will conflict with your Christian ones. And that's when you choose. Do I follow their advice or do I disappoint them? And that's when you think financial security? Worthless in comparison to knowing Christ. Home beautiful? Worthless in comparison to knowing Christ. Perfect school for the kids. Worthless in comparison to knowing Christ. Good grades. Perf, what am I? Worth, What? good grades. Worthless in comparison to knowing Christ. A job that satisfies? Finding the one. Worthless. Now, come on, ladies, let's have some boldness here. I have no conviction. Okay, so when you are ambitious to know Christ and for the glorious world he will bring in when he returns, when the prize is being with Christ and his people for eternity, there will be all sorts of surprising and unsettling decisions you will make, surprising and unsettling to the world around you, to the people who love you, to the people you respect. Costly decisions that those around you ambitious for lesser things won't understand or appreciate. Just deal with it. They're not your model, for this, because their vision of the good life and therefore what they're ambitious for is limited. We need new bodies, not just patched up old ones. We need our sinful heart change, not just the mitigation of some of sin's effects. And they're relying on human resources to solve the problems of the world, the problems of their life, which means they're limited to what human imagination can can picture for what is possible. And if that's what they're relying on, even when it's good, it will be limited. We need to keep expanding people's visions and ambitions. They've got to get bigger, not allow ours to contract to theirs. Because it won't help them in the long run. So I started with a vision of heaven. You need to think big, ambitious. We need to do this so that God willing, we all share in Christ's glory together. If your ambition is to know Christ and wait for him to return in his glory, if your ambition is to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead, if these are your ambitions not just for you but for us, if these ambitions are not just for us but for the people who don't yet know Jesus, people who aren't us yet but we want them to be, Jesus calls them to be, if that is what you are ambitious for, you will actually be asking where ministry fits in. You can't have it all. Athletes can't train for the Olympics and dominate in the classroom. Well, maybe the brilliant one can, most of them can't. There will be some good things they miss out on because they focus on the future. If you're ambitious for these things, you'll be asking yourself where ministry fits in. And fitting in ministry means making choices, costly choices, often between good things. That's the challenge. Costly choices, giving up good things. Time, money, work, energy. Your home is your own space if hospitality is your thing. Christians are busy, have you noticed that? And while I do suspect there is some ungodliness in our busyness, So let me remind you, God is perfectly capable of running the world without you. There is one saviour, he's come, it's not you. So yes, there is some ungodliness in our busyness. But it's also true that by the time you include church, growth group, drop that meal around, take that phone call with someone you find demanding because they're fragile, hours and energy does get used up. And it's okay to feel the cost. I think I used to think that godliness meant giving up good things without a second thought because of the joy in serving the Lord. Um, then a friend pointed out to me Jesus calling his disciples to take up their cross daily and follow me, follow him. And he reminded me that the cross was a picture of suffering and humiliation, shame, and that Jesus suffered when he died. That feeling a cost is okay, but deciding it's worth it is also. A good thing to do, and some of the costs are small. Uh, when I was in Canberra, I lived on one. I lived on the other side of the lake from my church. Right, the lake is the divide in Canberra. I lived on the south side. There was one other guy who lived on the same side as the lake from me, so I had to drive him to church every week because I was the only one who had the car. And some weeks that was fine. Other weeks, I hated it because it meant I had to go to church and I didn't have the freedom to decide week by week in the moment whether I turned up. It felt costly. And it was costly. Even though there were benefits, I got to church more often than I would have otherwise. This man now, right, he's a Greek scholar, writing books, writing Bible studies. Who knew that was going to happen to that 18-year-old kid? I'm certainly not the most significant Christian influence in his life. I just drove him to church. And it now gives me joy that I got him to church, which helped him grow as a Christian, which set the agenda for the work decisions he made and the thousands of people who will be ministered to because of him. Who knew? Some of the costs are small. Driving someone to church really isn't a biggie, even though I was a bit dramatic about it at the time. Some of the costs are bigger. I walked away from a job I loved to go into Christian ministry. Now, I like this job too. My life is not one of unmitigated suffering. But it is more tiring, and it does pay significantly less money. And it makes people uncomfortable when I tell them what I do. And I have conversation after conversation, and I never really know whether it makes any difference to anyone at all. There was something nice about working in an office and writing things down, and it just went away and it finished. But I do love it when I have the conversation that goes somewhere, when someone grasps the beauty of Jesus and the love he has for them. Now, some of us don't walk away from work for ministry, but the way we do our work, the jobs we choose, the hours we choose to put in might be impacted. I have to ask people to financially partner with me in this ministry. We don't do support raising, we do partnership development. I don't love that. But then I have one friend who has been financially partnering, got the language, financially partnering with me in ministry for nineteen years. Three hundred and forty bucks a month every month for nineteen years, that's a lot of money if you add it up. Which tells you what he's earning. Whenever I write to him and say thank you, he writes back and says, it's a delight to give you money, Helen, because God has given it to me and I give it to you and I see God do great things with it and that makes me happy. Sparks joy in me when I read that email. Grateful to God for giving me that friend. One of the costs, right? Here's the radical one, one more radical one. One of the costs might be doing even less ministry than what you are currently doing. If what is driving you is the need to be needed, maybe, maybe the gift you bring is the opportunity for other people to care for you in your tiredness. Maybe that's the ministry, the neediness, the weakness. That's not the one we want, though, is it? We want to serve out a strength. The giving up, maybe the cost is the giving up depending on your own efforts to allow others to minister to you. Uh, this passage ends with Paul calling the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord. Therefore my, I'm just going to say sisters, right? You're getting an edit. Therefore my sisters, Actually, a couple of brothers. No, therefore, my brothers and sisters. You, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Godly ambition sparks joy. Let me give you another. Bring on Mari back. She can come back. <laughs> Let me give you another picture of heaven. Sometimes I imagine heaven as a party. That's my version of the banquet, right? I don't want to be seated next to someone, I want to mix. We're not seated at tables, we're wandering around. And I figure we're there for eternity, we've got time to work the room. (laughs) And I bump into someone I know. And as we tell each other about how good God has been to us, we thank the person we're talking to by telling them how God used them to encourage us in the Lord. That'll spark joy. My friend, the cash cow, There will be people in heaven because of him. They will rejoice to speak to him. And I say, oh, that was you, that was you. They will rejoice to speak to him. He will rejoice to speak to them. And both of them will glorify and rejoice in God together. Paul sees the Philippians as his crown and joy. Money, a conversation, a meal, a prayer. It's not always words. And that really shouldn't just be a future thing. You could be thanking people now for their care for you. Spark joy now, I say. Godly ambition sparks joy. The joy of knowing our glorious Lord Jesus. The joy of knowing our future in heaven. And it will be glorious. The joy of knowing that this world is not as good as it gets The joy of knowing that we are not as good as we get. Just wait for the glory that will be revealed in us when we become like Christ. The joy of our God involving us in his plans and purposes to save the world. Frankly, I wouldn't have used you and me, and yet. Such glorious purpose. The joy of seeing people become Christian. We really should rejoice that people stay Christian. Because that's a big deal. The joy of being together in this. Godly ambition sparks joy.